Well, Merry Christmas. It is good to be together with all of you in worship this evening. I'm sure we're a diverse group of people, of family and friends and members of this church and those of you who are just visiting with us this evening. And I do want to issue a warm welcome to all of you and glad that we're together for this occasion to, to worship the Lord. I'm quite certain, too, some of you are likely devout followers of Jesus, and some of you are probably here and you're not that interested in these things. And um, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum between belief and unbelief, my hope is that as we explore the meaning of what we're celebrating tonight, that there will be something that sticks, uh, something that maybe just encourages you to think more deeply about this man, Jesus, that we celebrate as a baby this evening, and perhaps to grow to worship him, even for the first time. And if you're here and you're a child or a teenager, I'm glad that you're here as well. I know we don't have any children's things going on, but um, my guess is your focus is on the gifts that are under the tree and what you might be getting tonight or tomorrow, depending on your family's tradition. And I want to say that's all well and good, and uh, I too was once excited. I still to some degree am, but um, not as much as I was when I was your age. Um, but I want you to remember that all of those gifts point to a much deeper and greater gift. Of course, they're symbolic. That's why we give gifts at this time at Christmas, because God gave us the greatest gift of all in the person of his son. And that changes everything for all of us. It's a momentous gift that we've been given in Jesus. And so before you get to those lesser gifts tonight or tomorrow, I want you to think with us as well tonight about this greater gift uh, that we receive from our Lord. So as we open up God's word, let's pray together. And then uh, we'll dig in. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the amazing gift of the Son who was born over 2,000 years ago on this night. Lord, we pray as we open up your word together that you would do what only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would uh, grab each of us, that you would minister to us, maybe especially if we've got questions. We pray that you would speak, Lord that you would draw out of our hearts a response of faith. So we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name, this glorious child king that we celebrate. Amen. So let's start with an important point. Some of you may think this is a bit tedious, but uh, I think it's important and critical. The birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas is not the beginning of the story. In fact, we understand this from this Bible that I have in front of me. We understand that, that uh, the Bible clearly portrays the birth of Jesus as the fulfillment of or the climax of the work of God that he's already been doing in the world for thousands of years, quite literally, up to this point. The story between God and his people Israel, which is really a story about God and his creation, which includes all of us and everything that we see. And that history, that story is communicated to us, this true story, this history, in what we call, as Christians, the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible, more than half, quite a bit more than half. And it is a history awaiting a conclusion, awaiting a resolution. Don't press these uh, comparisons too far, but the Old Testament is like Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. And the New Testament is like Spider-Man No Way Home. Or, for those of you who are maybe more advanced in years, the older among us, I should say. The Old Testament is Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back, and the New Testament is Return of the Jedi. And here's the point, that the meaning of the third installment in these trilogies is shaped and deepened by the two installments that come before. 
And you can jump right into the third one. I actually recently had this experience when I took a few of my kids to see the new Spider-Man movie. I had not seen the first two. But you actually miss a lot. And so during the movie, I was leaning over and whispering to my son, probably to his annoyance and others, like, what's going on here? Who's that? Um, and in, in many ways, this, this, the, the reality of Jesus and his birth is like this. We, we want to know what's come before and recognize that this is picking up and completing it, uh, and fulfilling what has been promised up to this point. So throughout the first two portions of the trilogy, if you will, in the Old Testament, we get glimpses beautiful glimpses about what is coming about what God has promised about how God is going to deal with the problem of this world and the problem of sin and evil and death what he's going to do and we get one of those glimpses into this promise in the book of Isaiah and we read it already this evening from Isaiah chapter 52 it is a breathtaking glimpse of the of the promised salvation of God and the picture created there is of this lone runner How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. This lone runner coming across the mountains from the the battlefield to deliver news back to the people waiting for this news, waiting to know what's going on. And this runner has such excitement, you can imagine, as he's about to deliver incredibly good news. I actually think about the parallel runners in the New Testament, Mary and the other women who had gone to the tomb, remember? to see, to attend to the body of Jesus, and suddenly they found the tomb. The the stone had been rolled away, and Jesus was no longer there. They were told by the angels that he had risen, and so we're told in Matthew 28, they ran back to the disciples. So there they are with this amazing news to share to the disciples. And here, this lone runner is coming across the mountains to share some incredible news as well. And this news has three basic pieces to it. Um, In verse 7 of Isaiah 52... This runner says, your God reigns. In verse 8, he mentions the return of the Lord to Zion. And in verse 9 of Isaiah 52, he says that the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. We're actually going to be in Luke, but I'm doing this for a reason. This gospel in Isaiah has three dimensions to it. God reigning, God returning, And God redeeming. Reigning, returning, and redeeming. Can you say that with me? Reigning, returning, and redeeming. That's right. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take this lens of Isaiah and then bring it to Luke chapter 2. And use this lens to kind of explore the meaning of the birth of Jesus. And particularly in Luke 2, it's a large text. We're going to focus on verses 10 and 11. The angels speaking to the shepherds who are with their flock at night. Fear not, they say, or he says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This good news of great joy is about God reigning, God returning, and God redeeming. So in our time in this text, I'm actually going to flip the order, not to confuse you. And we're going to talk about God redeeming, God returning, and God reigning as we explore the meaning of the birth of Jesus. So, God redeeming. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. So, to announce a Savior, as the angel does on that night to the shepherds, is to suggest that we need saving. We need saving. 
I'm going to guess that most of us don't quibble with this. That if we're really honest, and if we think about the world in which we live, full of so much turmoil and challenge, and if we honestly think about our own hearts and how difficult they are to manage, how far we fall short from what we set up as our ideals. And it's not too difficult to know that there's something wrong both with the world and something wrong with us. I'm reminded of that well-known story at the beginning of the 20th century in London when the Times of London sent out uh, a question to many prominent authors and posed this question, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, one of the, the great Christian apologists, at that time, and a, and a great, talented author, he just wrote back a simple response that was brilliant. He said, Dear sirs, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. And if that's right, and I believe that it is, then nothing that we come up with is going to help. And this actually drives at the most prominent rival to the salvation of God, which is our project at some kind of self-salvation. Consider uh, these lyrics from the 2015 hit song by Rachel Platten called Fight Song. I'm sure some of you could sing it right now. This is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm all right song. My power is turned on. Starting right now, I'll be strong. This is my fight song. And I don't really care if anybody else believes because I still got a lot of fight left in me. Should I have sung that perhaps? Some of you could. You know, it sounds inspiring and it's catchy. And if you like that song, that's great. We play this song in our house sometimes too and can sing along. But does it really work? Do we have this fight in us? What happens when it runs out? For most of us, it does. Routinely and regularly. The dramatic effects that we make to save ourselves, to justify ourselves, to make ourselves feel okay... And we try a lot of different things from dieting to working out to moral rectitude to, you know, career advancement to intellectual prowess. There's any number of ways that we try to say to the world and probably more strongly to ourselves, hey, I'm okay. I count. I matter. None of those actually really deliver. The reality is from a biblical perspective, we're stuck and we do need a savior. And the good news of great joy that the angel announced that night to the shepherds is that there is a savior who is Christ the Lord. William Manchester wrote a, a masterful three-volume biography of Winston Churchill, and he begins by recount, recounting the perilous moment in which the English found themselves on the beaches of Dunkirk in 1940. And this is how Manchester writes. He says, The French had collapsed, the Dutch had been overwhelmed, the Belgians had surrendered, the British army trapped, fought free, and, fil and fell back toward the Channel ports, converging on a fishing town whose name was Dunkirk. It was England's greatest crisis. If the Germans crossed the channel and established uncontested beachheads, all would be lost. And then he recounts the miraculous rescue of the British troops. And he continues, now in this new exigency, confronted by the mightiest conqueror Europe had ever known, England looked for another Alfred, a figure cast in a mold which by the time of the Dunkirk deliverance seemed to have been forever lost. England's new leader, were he to prevail, would have to stand for everything England's decent civilized establishment had rejected. He would have to be a passionate Manichaean who saw the world as a medieval struggle to the death between the powers of good and the powers of evil, who held that individuals are responsible for their actions and that the German dictator was therefore wicked, 
Like Adolf Hitler, he would have to be a leader of intuitive genius, a born demagogue in the original sense of the word, a believer in the supremacy of his race and his national destiny, an artist who knew how to gather the blazing light of history into his prism and then distort it to his ends, an embodiment of inflexible resolution who could impose his will and his imagination on his people. Such a man, if he existed, would be England's last chance. In London, there was such a man. Churchill may have been the man to lead England through its darkest hour, but in all the earth, there was no man to deliver humanity from our dark hour of captivity to evil, sin, and death. So God entered in. God entered in and gave a gift. Unto you is born this day a Savior. God became flesh in the person of Jesus and did what no mere mortal could do. He defeated our enemies on the cross. This baby that we celebrate at Christmas obviously culminates and is born for the purpose of the hour that he came, which was to go to the cross to there enact the greatest rescue ever to be known out of his kindness, to rescue all those who would with open arms and with trust simply receive his gift and humbly offer themselves before him, the true Lord of all. God redeeming, we have a savior. The next word, returning. What do we need? It's an important question, and one that we can answer in a lot of legitimate and different ways, a fulfilling career, access to good health care, a good education, possibly a spouse, and so on. All of these are true in a way, but from the biblical perspective, the answer to the question, what do we need, is quite simple. It's simple. It's simply this. We need God. We need God. We are creatures. We've been created by a creator. And we were created to know him and to walk with him and to be in relationship with him. And we cannot function rightly. We cannot have genuine life outside of him. We desperately need God. And even if we don't know it tonight, even if we're chasing after all kinds of other things, the reality is that whatever you're chasing after, you're ultimately chasing after God himself. He is the only one that will satisfy. The only one that will bring us peace and rest. From a biblical point of view, we can have God and have nothing else and still find that we have life that is alive and content, but we can also have everything else, everything, and not have God and be completely at a loss, empty and afraid. The good news of great joy announced by the angel to the shepherds is that in Jesus, God is returning to his people. We don't have time to build the full case right now from the New Testament, but the teaching of the New Testament is clear that we find Jesus doing the things that only God does. Creating, loving, ruling, judging, saving. So when the angel announces here that Jesus, that there is a Savior that's born who is Christ the Lord, these words Lord and Savior are a claim about his identity in embryonic form. An embryo that will fully develop in the New Testament, even by the time we get to the Gospel of John and his prologue, when he says, without any ambiguity, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In this picture of a baby born that night in Bethlehem long ago, there is a picture of God, the God that we desperately need, drawing near. Drawing near to give us that which we need, that alone which we need, which is himself and his presence. 
When Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, is exclaiming his celebration at all that God is doing, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God has come near. Come by, come, come to us, that we might have him and belong to him and be filled by his spirit, by his very person, presence, and power, and become a part of his people, a part of his body even, that we might partake of God. So what's the big deal of that? I would actually suggest that our text points us to why that is such a big deal. What is the angel's first word to the shepherds? Fear not. They were terrified because of the the bright, shining, the appearance of the angel. But the angel says, fear not. Well, why shouldn't they fear? Here's why we don't have to fear. And fear has been a theme, hasn't it, over the last couple of years with the pandemic, fear and anxiety. It's a big deal. We've confronted death as as a worldwide culture in a way that we haven't, at least in living memory. Why don't we fear? Because we don't have to be afraid of the God who made us. We don't fear because God is radically for us. He came to save and to rescue, to redeem, to make new. And he is not capricious. He didn't come to destroy, but he comes near that he might rescue you and me. That he might give us himself. And so the angel angel says to the shepherds, fear not. And because we don't have to fear God anymore, we don't have to fear anything else. Even death itself. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker says that one of the great rediscoveries of modern thought is that of all things that move man, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. And even that great fear is overcome through the gift of God in Jesus Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 56, this I know that God is for me and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Paul says it like this in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, really, if God has come near, if God has given you himself, then is there any reason to be afraid? And I'm not suggesting that if you're afraid tonight that you're somehow second class as a disciple of Jesus. We all wrestle with fear. But the reality is, is what the angel says to the shepherds, fear not. God continues to say to us as his children, fear not. And this is a way of being encouraged to entrust ourselves to him the God who draws near. We know this in the psalm. Most of you know this psalm, even if you don't know that you know it, Psalm 23, when David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. The one thing that we need is the presence of God. And what Jesus brings is God in the flesh drawing near to you and me that we might know him and enjoy him and be done with a life of fear. It's an incredible gift so this brings to our our third r word we've talked about god redeeming and god returning and now the final is god reigning the angel announces that the one born that day is christ the lord the lord we've sung about this already this evening lord was the title for a king for one in authority and this baby was born we're told in the city of david which is a clue the great king of Israel. The simple confession of the earliest Christians, this was how they said that they were, they identified with Jesus, was simple. It was simply Jesus is Lord in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. And that was a dangerous refutation of the claim made throughout the Greco-Roman world that Caesar is Lord. The Christians said, no, Jesus is Lord. There can only be one genuine Lord. There can only be one authority over your life and over mine. And Jesus came to reign as king, as Lord. Nothing else 
can be Lord. Do you remember what he says at the end of his ministry after he'd been raised from the dead? At the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, Look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go issue my royal decree that I long for people to come under my rule, under my reign, and so find genuine life and peace and rest. The angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 says to Jesus' mother, as he's telling her that she's going to conceive and have a son, she says this about her, his, her son, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You might remember the story of the wise men, of the magi coming from the east. Who are they looking for? They say, we're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Herod, the king around that region at the time, was so threatened by the birth of another king that he killed and slaughtered all the male children around Bethlehem who were under the age of two because he knows that there can only be one genuine king, one ruler, only one who reigns. This question of reigning gets quite personal, actually, because it raises that question for you and for me. Who is reigning in your life tonight? Who is ruling over you? Who's calling the shots? Who are you serving? Who are you bending the knee to? Who's driving you to do what you do and to say what you say and to think what you think. There are many other gods, many other lords, and they make all kinds of dubious promises, and they make, a, they make their subjects follow their spurious and exacting demands. I have an older friend who spent a lot of his life being a, a coach for Fortune 500 CEOs. He was at that highest level of business leadership, and he once told me, Mark, I see on the eyes of these men and women, now in their 50s, late 50s, so much despair in some of them. Tears, even. Hollowness. Because they've sacrificed their lives and often their spouses and their children to the idol of success. It's not that everyone who's high up in business, if you're high up in business, that's not a statement about everyone, but it's an easy thing to do, and it's not just in business, it's anywhere that we begin to give ourselves an allegiance over to these other gods and they cannot deliver. In his well-known commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, David Foster Wallace, who was one of the literary geniuses of the late 20th and early 21st century until he committed suicide in 2007. So this was two years earlier. He, he said to all of the students, look, everybody has to worship. The only choice you get is who to worship. Everybody's got to do this. And he says this, quote, you should worship something divine because, quote, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. And he continues, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Wallace was not a Christian, but he was an astute observer of human nature. And he recognized that if we worship a lot of the idols on offer around us, that we will literally be eaten up. Jesus returns, Jesus is born, he comes to us to reign over us. We receive the presence of God as the ruler and Lord that he is. And yet, unlike the idols that promise so much and deliver very little, only fleeting pleasures that can never satisfy. Jesus gives everything at the cross. 
and then invites you to have genuine, full, and complete life under his lordship, under his reign. The good news of great joy is about God redeeming, God returning, and God reigning. And let me say this, when God reigns, he gives you the gift of letting go. You might remember some of you the invitation that Jesus makes to disciples and to those listening at the end of Matthew 11. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a tremendous freedom and joy in coming to this baby born king and handing over our lives to him. Because then we can find the genuine peace and rest that we long for. The, the heavenly host cries out glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Peace, genuine peace and rest, even in the midst of the storms and turmoil of the world in which we live. This is the good news. This is the good news that the man running across the mountains had to share with the people back in Isaiah 52. This is in sense the good news that Mary and the women had to share with the disciples that he's alive. He's not dead any longer, but he's now reigning and ruling and giving life as the one who's demonstrated his, his victory and defeat over death. This is the good news that raises our voices to songs of joy as it talks about in Isaiah 52. And as we see the heavenly host crying out to God, glory to God in the highest. This is good news, and it's not about us. I mean, we're fully invited into it, but it's about God and all that God has done on our behalf. This is the greatest gift that we could ever know. God reigning, God returning, God redeeming. This is the great news of Jesus, the one that the angel announces unto you. And that's where I want to finish. Who's it for? The angel says that, doesn't he? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. There's not one of you here for whom this news does not pertain, for whom this gift is not offered. And then he says, for unto you. It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? About a baby that was born. Wouldn't you think the angel should have said, unto Mary and Joseph was born this day. But no, it's unto you. Grandfathers and grandmothers and lawyers and teachers and children and teenagers. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the great gift you've given us in your Son. And I do pray, Lord, that we could receive your redemption could receive your presence and could yield to your rule and know genuine life, deeper life. How we thank you and worship you for all that you have given us. And we thank you and we worship you in the name of Jesus, our newborn King. Amen. <laughs>